0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi
2: is available at prh.com slash air.
3: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. I hope you're having a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and you've taken some time to think back on some things you're grateful for this year. As we look back, we've covered so many stories where we can say we're grateful for science, like how CAR T cells are being used to treat cancer and maybe other diseases. And of course, those new bivalent boosters aimed at protecting us from COVID variants. And like the rest of you, we couldn't help but marvel at the new images of space from the Webb telescope or root on the Artemis mission to the moon. So this hour, stories that make us thankful for science. Later in the hour, we'll revisit our conversation about mapping the entire human genome. But first, let's check in on the state of science.
2: This is KERA for WWNO, St. Louis
0: Public Radio KKMD Iowa News. Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Southern California, including Los Angeles, is home to a diverse ecosystem that includes big predators like mountain lions. But the 101, a busy multi-lane highway, slices right through the area. Dividing that ecosystem and making it hard for animals that live there. So, engineers, conservationists, and animal enthusiasts came together to build a giant animal crossing, a grassy path from one side of the freeway to the other. Back in April, on the day that they broke ground on this project after years of planning, I talked to Michelle Loxton, a podcast host and producer for KCLU Public Radio in Thousand Oaks, California. Welcome to Science Friday, Michelle. Thank you, Ira. Okay, for those of us who aren't based on the West Coast... Tell us a little bit about the 101. Where is it? How long does it go?
4: So the 101 Highway is a north-south highway that stretches along almost the entire west coast of the United States. It starts essentially at the U.S.-Canada border and goes through Washington State, Oregon, and California. The wildlife crossing will be built over Highway 101 in a city called Agora Hills, which is just north of Los Angeles. And Transportation experts have actually measured how many vehicles pass through this spot in Agora Hills on the 101 Highway. It's 300,000 vehicles every single day.
0: Wow. Wow. Can you you set the scene for what the ecosystem is like around where the crossing will go?
4: Sure. So... If you're standing at the location of the future wildlife crossing, you'll see a lot of rolling hills on either side of the highway. You'll see sage scrub, chaparral, and patches of oak woodlands. Right now, these rolling hills are a beautiful mix of green and yellow and brown because we've had a little bit of rain recently and the the wildflowers have been sprouting up. But these rolling hills, they extend for miles on either side of Highway 101 and there are homes and neighborhoods that have been established amongst the hills and the wild space. To the south of the highway, you have this massive open, wild, protected space called the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. It extends all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and it's the biggest urban national park in the country, in fact. North of the Highway 101 is a similar mix of wild space and neighborhood. And it's amongst this wild space in these neighborhoods on either side of the highway you'll find mountain lions, deer, bobcats, coyotes, badgers, rabbits, mice, wood rats, horn lizards, tree frogs, snakes, ants and quail, and all sorts of birds.
0: Amazing. So, so how does the 101 impact all these creatures that live there?
4: It has a big impact on them. I'm going to bring in the voice of Beth Pratt now, who I think describes the situation really well. So Pratt is from the National Wildlife Federation. She's led the campaign to get this wildlife crossing built. So the first thing to know about where the wildlife crossing will be built is that this is the last 1,600 feet of protected wild space on both sides of the highway in our region. Pratt describes this location like an hourglass, where you have these big open spaces on either side of the highway that are funneled into the center point of the hourglass, the center point of the hourglass being the highway itself. But unlike with an hourglass where sand would flow from one side to the other, in this case, the animals are the sand, and they've been blocked for decades from moving through the area because of the impenetrable wall that is Highway 101. Here's Beth Pratt.
1: The wildlife were already sort of coming to this area, And what the National Park Service study has shown, for at least the wildlife they have collared or tracking, like the mountain lions or or coyotes, they get here and they're like, "Uh, uh, I'm not crossing this, and they turn around.
4: If they do try and cross, they could be hit by cars. But like Pratt said there, a lot of them don't even try and essentially are boxed into the region where they were born. And This has had a disastrous effect on genetic diversity. The National Park Service has been studying carnivores in the region for 20 years, and they found that mountain lions in the Santa Monica's have very low genetic diversity, basically the lowest that anyone's seen, and that's because of inbreeding. Because mountain lions can't disperse because of the highway, male mountain lions are mating with daughters, granddaughters, and even great-granddaughters. One study found that male mountain lions have more than 90% abnormal sperm. For the wildlife experts, the wildlife crossing is a solution to this problem. It would allow the animals to safely cross the highway, firstly, and then it would allow them to mix with other populations in other regions.
0: You know, we've buried the lead here a bit. There's, There's a celebrity in this story P-22, a puma who is local Los Angeles legend. Can you tell us about P-22?
4: Yes. So P-22 really is our lead character in this story. P-22 is a mountain lion that was born in the Santa Monica Mountains over 10 years ago. P is for puma and 22 is because he was the 22nd puma or mountain lion to get a tracking collar. And when he was really young, he went on this incredible journey. He left the Santa Monica Mountains and managed to cross two of the busiest highways in our region, unhurt and undetected, and ended up in Griffith Park in Hollywood, where there are no other known mountain lions. Because his journey was such a fluke, he hasn't been able to leave Griffith Park and has essentially been stuck there for a decade on his own. But in this time, he's become a bit of a celebrity. Beth Pratt is kind of obsessed with P22. She has a tattoo of him on her arm and carries around this life-size cardboard cutout of him so people can take pictures with P22. She's called him the Brad Pitt of the mountain lion world, and the public loved that. For me,
1: what he did was get the public engaged, which was really important. The, the Park Service and others had been talking about the need for sort of connectivity for a while, but it, it wasn't something that resonated with people outside of the environmental or scientific world. And But all of a sudden, boom, you get this lonely, dateless, handsome bachelor show up in Griffith Park.
4: And it worked. People loved that idea of P22 and got invested in this idea of connecting wild spaces. And they started raising money for a wildlife crossing. Now, unfortunately, this particular wildlife crossing that we're talking about today won't benefit P22. He's just too cut off at the moment, but it will benefit many other mountain lions.
0: Oh, that's unfortunate. Let's talk more about the animal crossing. How long has this been in the works?
4: Well, the National Wildlife Federation started talking about this crossing behind the scenes in 2012. And then with P22 as the face of the campaign, they went to the public and started raising money two years later. It was a pretty steep fundraising hill to climb. The project was priced at $90 million, but they've raised the money through state funds, 40%, and private philanthropy, 60%. The biggest single private donation was $26 million.
0: Wow. This seems like it would be a major feat of engineering. Okay, can you walk us through what what what's it going to look like?
4: Absolutely. So, there's so many wonderful details about the crossing itself. In terms of size, the crossing will be about the width of an American football field going over 10 lanes of highway. The people designing it have described it to me like a a green roof on steroids or a green toupee. They're taking special care to make sure the crossing matches its environment. So they've taken the very biggest things into account, like how the crossing will fit in with the watershed in the region, all the way down to the microscopic level with the building of soil ecology. Here's Robert Rock, the COO of Living Habitats and the lead architect, talking about all the, the different details that they've considered
3: nine out of 10 people are not going to even know that we spent all this time thinking about the microbial biomass in the soil and the, you know, the, the degree to which that links to, to carbon sequestration or the, the minutia of how we design spaces to accommodate the California kingsnake. You know We're creating a project nursery for this where we are going to be growing all the plants that are going to be a part of this construction. And part of that is, is leveraging you know seed bank that the National Park Service has and that we'll be collecting from the site and from adjacent areas.
4: Another big part of the design is it has to be inviting to animals. That's the whole point, right? They need to get these animals to use it. So here are a few things that they're doing. They're putting massive sound barriers on the crossing itself and along the highway to dampen the noise of traffic. The height and thickness of the bridge has also been considered to avoid the noise of the cars below. They've also thought about the light, so they're looking into lowering streetlights on the nearby off-ramps without affecting safety. The colour palette has been taken from the Santa Monica Mountains, as I mentioned before, and this will help darken the structure at night so they don't have this reflective glow that you sometimes see on concrete bridges. They want it to work for all animals, from a quail to a snake to the mountain lions.
0: That is so cool. Okay, so how long will it take to complete?
4: Okay, with all big projects, there's always an approximate date, but uh, Beth Pratt told me that she hopes it will open for business by late 2024, early 2025. And they all have bets in place on what they think will be the first animal to use it. Pratt thinks maybe... A lizard. I don't know if you want to hazard a guess, Ira, but I think maybe a bird or perhaps a, a very brave coyote.
0: I'll go with the coyote. I think I'm with I'm with the coyote on this one. So this is going to be the first of its kind in terms of how big this crossing is, but could we expect to see more of these in California or perhaps even across other parts of the country?
4: This is a big hope for everyone involved in the project. Yes, animal crossings in different forms exist all over the world. We, we've seen ones for crabs going over roads. We've seen ones for bears going under roads. But one this big and intricate going over such a busy highway is a first. And those involved don't want it to be cutting edge for long.
0: Michelle Loxton is podcast host and producer for KCLU Public Radio in Thousand Oaks, California. She reported this story for KCLU's podcast, The 101.
4: Thank you, Ira.
0: Coming up right after the break, some more science we're thankful for. After decades, we now have a full map of the human genome.
3: While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protests against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. We're looking back this hour at some of the conversations that made us thankful for science. This next story was an easy one to put on that list. Two decades ago, scientists announced a monumental scientific achievement. They had sequenced the human genome, but there were gaps in that original sequence. In fact, about 8% of the sequence was completely blank. And a lot of that used to be dismissively called junk DNA. Well, in late March of this year, scientists finally released the first fully complete assembly of the human genome, and research published in a special edition of the journal Science. We talked to Karen Mega, Assistant Professor of Biomolecular Engineering and Associate Director of the UC Santa Cruz Genomics Institute, and Adam Filippi, a Senior Investigator at the National Human Genome Research Institute. That's at NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome to Science Friday.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Ira.
0: Pleasure to be here. Nice to have you. Let me begin with this question of this telomere-to-telomere consortium that you have founded, an international effort that led to the assembly of this new fully complete human genome. Uh, Dr. Miga, tell us the significance of that name.
1: Your listeners may recognize that the telomere is at the end of our chromosomes. And so we chose telomere-to-telomere to really illustrate that we were trying to complete an entire chromosome in one assembly end to end.
0: Not just uh, just broken pizza pieces. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, and, and it's been really wonderful because it really does create a full view of a human chromosome for the first time, which is exciting.
0: So let's get into this. What's on these newly sequenced parts of the human genome, Dr. Miga?
1: Right, so the new sequences represent essentially regions of our genome that are known to be important for fundamental cellular processes. When we talk about regions like the centromere, which is pretty exciting for my own research, we know they're responsible for how our chromosomes are transmitted every single time our cells divide. So changes in these sites in our genome could actually cause errors um, that could lead to all kinds of health outcomes. In total, we're talking about 200 million bases, so it's a lot. That
0: That is a lot. That's a large percentage. We said 8%. Could you make a whole new genome out of that kind of material?
1: Well, I think when we talk about a chromosome's worth, 200 million bases is about the size of one of our largest chromosomes. Um, If we look at the information, it's our third largest, so it's slightly bigger than chromosome 3.
0: Now, are these parts of the genome that scientists use to refer to as junk DNA? Is that what you have actually identified?
1: (laughs) I think it would be hard to consider the sequences in these regions to be junk. I think that word um, Ira, you'll probably agree with me, is probably outdated and it's just used as, as a way to explain processes we don't yet understand.
0: How dumb was that?
1: <laughs> I really think that these regions are misunderstood. They they don't fall in our standard textbook definition of how genomes are organized. They do have genes in these regions. We, we do have these standard um, organizations, but they're really enriched with a unique kind of structure where you have a a sequence that's found in a head-to-tail, head-to-tail orientation for millions of bases. And why our genome is arranged in this way and in the corners of our genome, I think remains an unknown.
0: And this has been your life's work, hasn't it?
1: It has. I've been passionate about satellite DNAs um, since graduate school. And so I was really lucky to be able to to pair up with such an amazing scientist like Adam Philippi to make this dream come true because he's really kind of the the other side of this, where I've been focusing so much on the satellite DNAs and the biology of these um, unique genetic elements. Having that type of mastery over assembly really brought us to where we are now.
0: Well, let me talk to Adam. Dr. Philippi, why did it take so long to sequence this final 8% of the genome?
3: After the Human Genome Project finished in 2004, the holes that were left were the most repetitive bits of the genome. So, you know, imagine you have a puzzle and there's a bowl of Skittles over in the corner of that puzzle, and that's the hardest bit to put together because all of the Skittles look the same. Those types of repeats make jigsaw puzzles hard, just like they make putting a genome back together again difficult. And so it was those repeats that had us interested from a computational perspective and gave us uh, a big challenge in putting this back together again. So the reason that they weren't done originally is the technology just wasn't up to the task. Back in the early 2000s, we could only read small bits of the genome at a time, And when the puzzle is made of small pieces, it's a lot harder to put together than when they're made of big pieces. And so for this project, we came in with new sequencing technologies that have been developed over the last decades. They can read up to a million bases of sequence at a time compared to in the early 2000s, where we were limited to a few hundred bases.
0: Now, knowing what we know now, if you have the total sequence, how does this move us forward in learning about DNA?
3: Well, now that we've figured out how to do it, and we can reconstruct these repetitive regions for the first time, it allows us to do that again now for many more human genomes. Or if we have a patient come into the clinic, we can sequence their complete genome, line it up against this new complete reference sequence, and we're able to get a more comprehensive picture of all of the potential variants that they have within their genome. And then over time, we'll be able to link those newly discovered variants to potential disease associations, for instance.
0: Is there one disease out there or one treatment that was waiting for this total sequence to be unraveled, do you think? And now it's in the crosshairs.
3: The one I would probably point to first are the so-called Robertsonian translocations. These occur in one in a thousand births, and it's a fusion, essentially, of two different chromosomes. And we've revealed for the first time five entirely new chromosome arms, and they are directly related to this type of chromosomal anomaly. And a lot of our collaborators that are interested in these translocations now have the base precise sequence that they can look into and try to understand how these form and what the potential repercussions could be.
0: Will it also tell us how we're different from other animals, other primates close to us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, these repetitive regions are some of the most dynamic, the most variable regions of the genome compared to our nearest primate relatives. Uh, the most variable between individual humans. Uh, so we have some hope that there'll be very exciting discoveries uh, within these regions that might hold the key to what makes our genome uniquely human.
1: It's kind of a contrast to how we think about function, with everything having to be deeply conserved. And these regions, which we know are functional, or are placed in these critically functional regions. They're, as Adam mentioned, extremely dynamic, and in many cases, human-specific. So it's kind of in contrast to what we're used to thinking about in terms of how we think about evolution and conservation.
0: Now that we have these new tools you're talking about, how far out are we from each one of us getting our own individual genomes
3: mapped? That's definitely the goal of this consortium is to help develop the technology to a point that a project like this to get a complete human genome can be replicated and become routine. And I think within 10 years, it will be routine to have your complete diploid genome is just part of your medical record. At
0: a cost of what?
3: So for uh, the original human genome project, just to put things in perspective, in today's dollars, I think it was around $5 billion, and a 10-year-plus effort. This project, we estimate, um, maybe a couple million dollars from start to end. But the technologies that we developed along the way and the technologies that have come from industry and elsewhere have driven this number down so that if we were to redo this project today, we could probably get it done in a month for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. But the trajectory of technology advance has just continued on this exponential pace for 30 years. And I think uh, within the next 10 years, we can easily get it to under a day and very likely, you know, this mystical thousand dollar genome.
1: In addition to this economic benefit of making it more affordable and more scalable. But I think that in the process of moving in that direction, we're giving the research community time to study these sequences and balance it with the benefit, going back against that statement that this is junk DNA. Now, providing the genomic community and, and the research community with these sequences for the first time, hopefully they'll see why it's so useful to have this type of comprehensive variant scan.
0: Interesting. Uh, Dr. Philippi, I know that part of this research is that your team has mapped some missing pieces in the Y chromosome. What was missing, and why is this such a big achievement?
3: So in the uh, the papers that are coming out this week, we actually didn't describe the Y chromosome. The particular cell line that we chose to sequence initially has two copies of the X chromosome. But in the year that followed since we completed that genome, we moved on and um, got a different cell line that had a Y chromosome, and Replicated the same effort for this particular one. There's 50% missing in the current Y chromosome reference to date uh, from the Human Genome Project in 2004. A lot of that is this uh, highly repetitive DNA that Karen was mentioning earlier. And it's important for the same reasons that we've completed the rest of the genome. This is filling in all of the missing pieces in the puzzle. And now we can look at those regions and identify the variants and understand uh, the functional consequences of the sequence in those regions.
0: And the Y chromosome is passed paternally, right? So that's quite important to know about.
3: Yeah, that's correct. It's uh, commonly used in genealogical studies because of that fact, uh, used to build family trees. And uh, anybody that's used 23andMe and any of those other services will have benefited from that.
0: Uh, Karen, why is this part so important?
1: Or the Y chromosome? I think that's a, a huge question. Um, I, I think we haven't quite figured out what it means to lose a giant amount of of tandem repeats that exist on the Q arm, half of the chromosome. I do know that as we age, you know, these parts of our genome that are typically repetitive, they they change in the, in the way our cells regulate how they're organized. And over time, the Y chromosome is sometimes lost. So it does it does offer some new insight that something about these particular sequences and all the proteins that are binding to them present a, a huge unknown. Um, for people to start thinking about what it's doing in the cell and and how it could be influenced with with the gain or loss of a Y.
3: On these very large tandem repeats on the Y, it's not just those tandem repeats that we've added, but also added a number of genes uh, nearby and around those tandem repeats, increasing not only the sequence content, but the genetic content of the Y as well.
0: Adam, you started this project to complete the human genome back in 2018, but the second half of the project, the computational end, took place during the pandemic. And in fact, a big breakthrough happened right in the middle in the spring of 2020. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah, we were in many ways fortunate that all of the sequencing and lab work that generated the data for this project happened before the pandemic. And so we were sitting on that data spring of 2020 when COVID outbreak hit. And a postdoc in my lab, Sergey Nurk, Who was leading the computational analysis came to me with kind of the the early look at that data, trying to assemble it for the first time. And when we looked at it, he put it up on his screen and showed me and kind of everybody in the room saw that and thought, wow, we actually have a chance at succeeding here. It gave us the clearest picture we had seen to date. And so we kind of rounded up all of our colleagues that were experts in this genome assembly process and worked over the course of that summer for about three months and didn't really expect to complete every chromosome. I would have been happy if we just got five done, but come August, all of it had snapped together. We had all of the chromosomes complete and ready to validate, and it was just a a tremendously exciting summer and gave us something positive to focus on during those difficult times.
0: Do you think that everyone working from home and focused on this project, because it was a worldwide project, right? Did did that perhaps get you to where you could get to the endpoint faster?
3: Yeah, it's, it's always tricky to speculate, but I usually have a, a busy travel schedule and I was home in my basement every day working. And so I definitely could focus a lot more on the work at hand and not be uh, diverted with all of these other administrative tasks, travel tasks, and also just all of the collaborative tools. You know, we were on Slack and Zoom all day long, talking to each other kind of constantly. It definitely uh, helped make progress fast. I'm Ira Flato and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
0: Dr. Mega, how many scientists internationally worked on this project?
1: Well, when we look over our, our author list in the main paper, I think we're approaching 100 scientists in total. When we started, it was just more or less Adam and myself asking, is it possible? And just starting to sequence and work together. But when we opened the consortium, it was really a grassroots effort. It was an open door. Anyone could join. And we soon had um, contributors from around the world.
0: Now, I understand you published the Complete Genome via a preprint server last summer. Are scientists already using it in the lab?
1: For sure. I mean, we've had hundreds of of people already download our preprint, um, citing our preprint. So I think that this is really demonstrating the utility of our work and the fact that there's going to be new discoveries that will be made and announced in the future.
3: This kind of philosophy of the group to be very open and inviting to everyone has given us those Uh, new directions. And it's also given us a lot of confidence that what we're looking at is correct because we've had, Karen mentioned, hundreds of people looking at every corner of this genome over the past three years. And that gives us a lot of confidence that we've done it correctly. I remember when the the
0: project was first announced 20 years ago when they talked about, hey, we've got the human genome figured out. The scientists were saying, well, wait a minute, that was actually the easy part. The the difficult, the real work is going going to come into figuring out what the functionality is and how we apply it. Uh, Dr. Philippi, do you think this is where
3: we are again? What what comes next? Yeah, exactly. We uh, we've spent twenty years, you know, digging into what was produced by the Human Genome Project and have just scratched the surface of that. And now we're at this again, where we've got an, another eight percent, and we've been looking at the same parts of the genome for the past twenty years. So this represents a, a new two hundred million bases to be investigated. And so, yeah, we're, we're starting over with this. It's a brand new unknown sequence, and uh, the same excitement will repeat itself now in another 20 years of digging into this new sequence.
0: And Dr. Miga, what do you hope this new sequence will bring?
1: I hope that these new sequences um, will bring some new insight into what these repetitive sequences are contributing to in terms of how our cell functions, how it contributes to cell identity in early development, and how it contributes towards human disease. I think that there's so many open questions here. And I think they've just had a, a roadblock because of the lack of a reference genome. And in fact, many scientists and researchers around the world probably already have data now that they could just map to our reference genome without even doing another experiment and start to find new discoveries and new information just because they've been ignoring it for so
0: long. It's so hard to portray for we on this side of the microphone to portray the excitement that must be going on with scientists who have completed this. Would I, would I be correct in assuming that? Well, it's been the most exciting point of my career for sure.
1: Same. This is really great. This is the most joy I've had in my career.
0: Thank you both for taking time to be with us today and I hope you'll come back and tell us about these exciting times when they happen.
1: Happy to. Thanks so much for having us.
3: Yeah, if you're still here in uh, 20 years, Ira, we'll be back. <laughs> it's a date, okay? We'll meet here. Thank you both for for the work you do and
0: for taking time to uh, be with us today. Karen Miga, Assistant Professor of Biomolecular Engineering, Associate Director of the UC Santa Cruz Genomics Institute, and Adam Philippi, Senior Investigator, Head of the Genome Informatics Section at the National Human Genome Research Institute. That's at NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. When we come back, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't know if there were any so-called exoplanets out there orbiting distant stars. Well, this year, the number we've found passed 5,000. More on the search for a life and why we're thankful for science right after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're looking back at some of the science stories of this year that we're thankful for. And several of those stories have us looking toward the skies. It was a big year for space exploration, including the search for life elsewhere in the universe. You know, today, it's a given that there are faraway planets orbiting other stars. But as recently as 1992, there were no known exoplanets. In the last 30 years, however, NASA's exoplanet archive has grown. And earlier this year, that number surpassed 5,000. In March, sci John Dankowski talked about the hunt for exoplanets with Jessie Christensen. She's the NASA Exoplanet Archive Project Science Lead
5: at IPAC Caltech in Pasadena, California. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Uh, hi, John. Thank you for having me.
5: So why is this milestone such a big deal for you?
2: Oh, it's exciting for a number of reasons. One is that it's a celebration, right? We've, we have tried for so long to find planets. And as soon as we started finding them, we started realizing they're everywhere. So reaching a number like 5,000 just feels like real validation of the field. Like we've worked so hard. Hooray. Another thing that's exciting is what we can do with all of those planets, like the questions we can answer now about how planets form and evolve and migrate.
5: And it really is very interesting that we've got this big number now. We can learn so much. So how much do we know about each of these 5,000 at this moment?
2: Yeah, it turns out most of them, we don't know very much. What we know about most of them is their rough size, and we know how long it takes them to orbit their star, so their year. And that tells us how hot the planets are. If you're very close to your star, then you're very hot. If you're far away, then you're very cold. So we know their rough size and their rough temperature. That's it for most of the 5,000.
5: I want to take a step back and talk about how you actually find a planet that could be dozens of light years away. Just explain it to us, what it is that you're looking for.
2: So the most successful planet hunting technique that accounts for two-thirds or more of the 5,000 planets is called the transit method. Now, what we're doing with that is we're actually just monitoring the brightness of the star over and over and over again for years at a time sometimes. And we're just waiting for little dips in the brightness because that means a planet could have orbited in front of that star and blocked some of the light. Uh, So if you see these dips, then you look at the star with other telescopes and you confirm that you're actually really seeing a planet.
5: So what are the other techniques? If, If that accounts for most of the planets that you've seen, what else have you used to find these planets?
2: Yeah, so there's also something called the radial velocity method or the Doppler method. This relies on the fact that planets, as they orbit their stars, are actually tugging on their stars the same way the stars are tugging on their planets. So for instance, in our solar system, Jupiter is actually dragging our sun around the middle of the solar system on a roughly 12 year orbit. So when we look at other suns, other stars in the sky, we can actually see them wobbling as well. So then you can measure from the size of the wobble and the duration of the wobble, how big a planet must be to be pulling on the star in that way. Uh, We've also found planets using direct imaging. So that's for the very nearby planets. If you're very careful, you can block out the light from the star and actually search around the star for nearby faint glowing blobs, basically, which turn out to be hot young planets. And another successful technique is microlensing, which relies on relativity, basically, that everything with mass bends space-time, planets bend space-time. So if you carefully monitor some stars, you can actually see them warped by the planets that orbit between us and the star.
5: Wow, so some very direct methods and some pretty indirect methods in there in terms of how you find planets.
2: Yes, exactly.
5: So you say 5,000 confirmed exoplanets. What exactly does it take to confirm one and how confident are you in all of those 5,000?
2: Right, so there's two ways to get a planet into NASA's exoplanet archive. One is to measure its mass and show that it's truly a planetary mass object. It's not big enough to be a star. Uh, And you can use the radial velocity method for that, for instance, or the microlensing method. Another is to show statistically that it's much more likely to be a planet than anything else. So you look at all of the other possible scenarios that could have created this signal in your data and you rule them all out one by one. You say it couldn't be a background star. It couldn't be an instrument glitch. And then when you have odds of better than 100 to 1 that the signal that you see is a planet, then we, we say, OK, you've statistically shown it's a planet and it can go in the archive.
5: If we found about 5,000, what does this tell us about how many there actually are out there? Is there any way to extrapolate these numbers and say, OK, well, we found 5,000 of them. That must mean we have X number of more planets out there to find.
2: That's the really overwhelming part of reaching this milestone, because we've really only searched our local solar neighborhood. We've only really looked around us in the galaxy. So if you extrapolate over the hundreds of billions of stars just in our Milky Way, that means there's likely tens of billions of planets.
5: How many places like our own solar system with a range of planet types and sizes have we found?
2: You know, that's really interesting. We might be more unique than we would have expected. When we look at planetary systems around other stars, what we see is that they mostly have similar planets around them. So a star will have a lot of small planets or a lot of big planets. And it's actually not as common to see a mix like we have in our solar system. We're still extending our observations so that we can test that. But at the moment, we really think that our solar system might be an uncommon arrangement of planets.
5: So is there an average planet in your collection? You've said that around many of these stars, you'll see planets that are often of a similar type. Are you finding a similar type of planet amongst these 5,000?
2: The most common kind of planet we've found is actually a surprise because it's not a kind of planet we have in our solar system. Uh, We call it a super Earth, and it's up to two times as big and 10 times as heavy as our Earth. And that's really interesting because we don't have one, so we don't know what they're like. We don't know whether they're big rocks. We don't know whether they're little ice giants like scaled down Neptunes. Uh, So they're a big mystery, but they seem like they're the most common kind of planet that we've found so far.
5: Is there something about that size range that might make it easier for us to find? Like, is Is there a minimum viable size of a planet that you could actually see using any of these different techniques that you use?
2: That's a really great question. And it is very difficult to find planets as small as Earth. NASA had a mission called Kepler, which was trying to do this and still couldn't quite get there. In the scheme of things, Earth is really small. (laughs) So it's very difficult to find them. But we know enough to be able to extrapolate how common we think Earth should be. And we still think that super Earths, which are, as you say, easier to find because they're bigger, are more common.
5: In terms of Earth size, you you say it might be hard to find. If, If we were standing on one of these other exoplanets, do you think we'd be able to see the Earth?
2: Yes, and actually there was a really interesting result that just came out last year where a pair of astronomers actually looked at all of the stars that could possibly see us transiting, right? You know, this geometry that I talked about where a planet has to be lined up just right to block some of the light we know what stars could look and see us transiting. And those stars have actually been the subject of searches from like the SETI Institute to say like, hey, if you can see us, maybe we could see you. Uh,
5: amongst these planets, is there an average distance from the sun and, and temperature? Are, are you finding planets of a, of a certain temperature uh, out, out there amongst their suns?
2: That one's harder to answer because that really depends on how long we've been searching around a given star for it's easier to find the close-in hot planets because, for instance, they transit more often. Like if you were looking at our sun, Mercury would transit much more often than Venus and more often than Earth. So we're very sensitive to the close-in hot things, and we have found thousands of close-in hot things. We're still incomplete in our searches out here around where Earth is at the cooler temperatures. So it's a bit hard to say yet where, for instance, the peak of planet occurrence is in distance from the star, but that's something we're really trying to answer with our next-generation telescopes.
5: Yeah, and this is something we talk about an awful lot. There's this this question of the Goldilocks zone, the, the distance from a star that would allow a planet like Earth to support life. How many of those are out there of the 5,000, do you think?
2: That's the million, billion, trillion dollar question. So, <laughs> so far, we haven't found any planets like the Earth in the Goldilocks zone of a star wow. like the sun. We have found planets like the Earth in the Goldilocks zone of much smaller, much cooler stars called M-dwarfs. And actually, most of the stars in the galaxy are M-dwarfs. So it might be that habitable Goldilocks zone real estate is common throughout the galaxy. But there's a big question, which is, can planets around M-dwarfs, which are a very different kind of star than our sun, actually support life? And we don't know the answer to that yet.
5: Are there certain types of stars around which you find more planets than others?
2: Yeah, these M-dwarfs actually seem like they're really, really good at making rocky planets, for instance, which was a surprise because I think a lot of us expected that bigger stars would make more planets. You know, they're starting from a bigger amount of gas and dust, the bigger protoplanetary disk with material to form planets. Uh, But it seems like maybe those bigger stars, you know, they put out a lot of radiation. Maybe they blow a lot of the gas and dust away and they're not as efficient at turning that into planets. Whereas small stars seem like they're very good at converting their protoplanetary disks into actual planets. So we see many more planets around small stars than around big stars, which is a surprise.
5: Amongst your colleagues and the people who do this work, are there differences of opinion on how you define a planet or how you should define a planet? (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's a very timely question. Just <laughs> earlier this week, the International Astronomical Union, famous for demoting Pluto in 2006, <laughs> decided to put out a proposal for what the definition of an exoplanet should be. So, an exoplanet is a planet around another star, and we're already fighting about what the definition of planet is around our own star. So, we haven't really settled yet. There is debate, and what I'll say is that the different archives online that try and keep track of these things. We all have our own criteria that we've kind of settled on scientifically and politically, like this is, this is our box that we're going to fill. So there are definitely different criteria. There is not consensus yet about, <laughs> for instance, if you have a planetary mass object just free floating in the galaxy, is it a planet? Because it's not orbiting a star, but it's planetary mass. So that's one of the open questions right now. Do you call that a planet or not?
5: Interesting. Okay. So what are you most excited about right now in exoplanet research? What's the next big thing?
2: Well, everyone is really excited about James Webb. And one of the most exciting things about the James Webb Space Telescope is that it'll give us the ability to find out so much more about the planets. So remember I said at the start, we really only know their sizes and their temperatures. So James Webb will let us peer into the atmospheres and onto the surfaces of these planets to look for things like clouds and and structures and surfaces and surface materials and compositions. Uh, It's super exciting. They'll, They'll turn from just like dots on a plot into real 3D worlds with data associated with them, which I'm really excited about. The NASA TESS mission is flying right now. That's NASA's current planet hunting mission. It's doing an all sky survey for planets transiting the very brightest stars. And those planets will end up being the targets for James Webb for further characterization. Uh, so, yes, TESS is a very prolific mission, which is being very successful right now that I'm also working on.
5: I'm talking with Jessie Christensen. She's the NASA Exoplanet Archive Project Science Lead at IPAC. Caltech in Pasadena, California. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Do you have a favorite exoplanet?
2: <laughs> That's like asking a mother to choose between her children—between <laughs> um, her
5: five thousand children. Yeah. Between
2: her five thousand children, my favorite is always the next one, right? Like people are like, you know, it's five thousand. Don't you have enough? And it's not just a number, right? It's not just five thousand. Every one of these is a is a whole new planet, a new world. Like think about the diversity just in our solar system, right? And each world has personality and has features and is different. So of these 5000, you know, they're all amazing and incredible and rich worlds that I just can't wait to learn more about. And then personally, there's a system called K2-138 uh, which I love. It was found by citizen scientists, so that's people just like your listeners at home on their computers, looking through NASA data and helping us find planets. It's got six planets around it. uh, And the inner five planets play music. (laughs) They're in a resonance. And they actually, if you put that to music, it actually plays like twinkle, twinkle, little star. It's really sweet.
5: (laughs) That's so amazing. It's just amazing to think about, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's so much fun. It's so much fun.
5: So if you were to go to one of these planets to take an up-close look, though, and do tests and learn a little bit more about, is is there one of these planets that you think about an awful lot?
2: Yeah. So one of our big holdouts is Kepler-452b. So I mentioned that Kepler was our planet-hunting telescope that we were trying to find Earth-like planets with, and we just couldn't quite get there. And Kepler-452b is as close as we got. So. We think it's about one and a half times the size of the Earth, which is where we start to get worried that it's not gonna be predominantly rocky with a thin atmosphere anymore like Earth, but something more like a scaled down Neptune. So an ice giant sort of thing. So we're not sure if it's rocky. So that's one mystery I would love to solve just to get there and to know whether it's rocky. We know it's in the habitable zone of a star like the sun, but the other mystery about Kepler-452b is whether it's actually there or not. (laughs) So the signal we see in the Kepler data is, a lot like a type of noise that we also see in the Kepler data. So either it's the very closest thing we found to an Earth-like planet with Kepler if it's rocky and has a thin atmosphere, or it's not there. (laughs) So I would really love to go there and solve that mystery because it has plagued us for a decade at this point.
5: Do you think that we will double this number of exoplanets, triple it? I mean, How many more exoplanets will we find over the course of, I don't know, say your career?
2: Oh, I, you know, hundreds of thousands is the prediction. So for instance, NASA is launching the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope in five years or so. And it's going to do a survey of the center of the galaxy where most of the stars are. And it's expected to find 100,000 planets just on its own. Planets are everywhere. That's the big discovery of the last 30 years is everywhere we look, we see planets. And so as our technology and our instruments improve, we're just going to find more and more. And I'm hoping we find more and more interesting planets. And I'm hoping we find more Earth-like planets.
5: Almost all the people, I would think, who are listening to Science Friday right now get really excited about the idea of a search for new life, a search for new planets. But there are a lot of people who say, look, we've got a lot of problems here on Earth. (laughs) Why are we spending so much money and time and all these bright scientific minds looking for planets that we'll never be able to get to? And I'm sure people say that to you, too. What do you tell them?
2: Yeah, so usually I have two answers. One is that the question of are we alone is one of humanity's most fundamental, earliest, oldest questions in this whole vast universe and all of its potential and all of its possibility. Could it possibly just be us? Are we alone? That's such a huge question to answer. And the second is, If we can study the planets around us, we'll work out what our fate will be. You hear that in five billion years, the sun will expand to become a red giant and expand out to the orbit near Earth. And then after that, it's going to slough off its outer layers and become a white dwarf, which is just a little cooling ball of carbon and oxygen. And they're just going to cool forever. Uh, And there's been a lot of open questions about what does that mean for Earth? Like, what does that mean for us? What's our fate? And one of the discoveries of the last five years is planets around white dwarfs. It's possible to survive that phase of a star going into a red giant and then becoming a white dwarf. And, you know, that means that the trillions of years that our sun will spend as a white dwarf, it might be possible that there's a second stage of planet life uh, after this red giant phase. So. I think, you know, that's a really important question as well, not just like where did we come from and are we alone, but where are we going?
5: That is a good place to leave our conversation. Jesse Christensen is NASA Exoplanet Archive Project Science Lead at IPAC Caltech in Pasadena, California. Congratulations on this milestone and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. sci
0: John Dankowski in an interview recorded this March. Oh, as of today, that exoplanet list has reached 5,211 to be exact. And that's about all the time we have for this week. If you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us the classic way, sci at sciencefriday.com. Oh, and if you're looking for a gift idea for a sci fan in your family, head to sciencefriday.com/store to get your holiday shopping done. We've got knit caps, hoodies, water bottles, even cephalopod week shirts for your little one. That's sciencefriday.com/store. Enjoy your holiday weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.